we're doing a sequel. We're back by popular demand. Come on, everybody, strike up the band. We're doing a sequel. That's what we do in Hollywood. And everybody knows that the sequel's never quite as good. A sequel. Welcome, everybody, to episode 203 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And this show, we're going to talk about returning monsters. Uh, recently, in the 21st century timeline, the Sea Devils return. But uh, we're going to look at the first return of the Sea Devils and other monsters. When monsters return. Yeah, sequels. Exactly. Monsters we pay back for more. And how effective are those? So I think we've talked in the past how monsters is kind of a ill-defined term. It can mean quite a range. You know, we had the discussion of, is the master a monster? I was I was going to bring that up. I think we're talking about monsters, aren't we? We're not talking about villains. Because, I, I, again, yes. I think we've... Um, We've uh, we've I think we've established a pretty neat distinction, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of logical distinction between a monster and a villain. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think the best way to explain that is that the Daleks are monsters, and uh, Davros is a villain. Mm-hmm. And so the first returning, or the most recent returning monster, or blah, 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 the last returning monster, I believe, in the uh, 20th century run is the Sea Devils and Silurians, because. Sill, I would characterize as a villain. Right. So I think, and looking back, I think it is this the return of the Sea Devils and the Silurians in Warriors of the Deep was the first return, or the most recent in terms of classic who return of uh, of a monster. And it was uh, quite a few years. It was almost a decade in, in between their return and uh, debut. And it was a double return as well. Yeah. So we kind of make that link between um, the different, uh, ooh, I don't know, ra- races, strands. Um, species. Species of the Eocenes, one being the mm-hmm. Sea Devils. And let's let's be clear, that is their name. I <laughs> uh, don't know why they call themselves that, but that's what they call themselves. Um, and the Salarians. And again, let's be clear, that's their name. Um, don't know why they call themselves that, but <laughs> that's what they call themselves. Um of course, mysteriously, in Warriors of the Deep, those two Eocene races, species, mm-hmm. um, come back slightly different, which I, which I, I, again, I mean, I always, I always kind of go back to my own formative memories of seeing these shows, and mm-hmm. um, I was massively disappointed, unfortunately, by the return of the Sea Devils slash Eocenes. Do you think that's pretty common for returning monsters? That they have enough appeal that the showrunner, the producer, the script editor wants to see them return because they're popular with the audience. And then the their their return, their sequel, may lead to disappointment because of high, overly amped up fan expectations. Yeah, maybe. Was, um, was Malcolm Hulk dead by the time? <laughs> That's a... Yes, yes, he had passed. He died in July of 1979. So I mean, I think, I think you know. So they had much. To, yeah, yeah, they had to hand that over to somebody else. So again, this is you know obviously my own rose-tinted third eye here. Mm-hmm. But the lot of the appeal of those 70s stories was the excellence of the writing, the very distinctiveness of the writing. Right. And again, as I've said before, a lot of my kind of primary experience of who mm-hmm. of those shows was not having watched them on the television, but having read the book. 
and I think both the Sea Devils and um, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, as was the novelization of the Silurians mm-hmm. was called, um, were very were really fun reads um, that I read over and over, over and over again as a kid. So I think in some ways I was disappointed that the you know, the kind of themes and the characterizations of Malcolm Hulk didn't really carry over yeah. to Warriors from the Deep. And, and again, we've discussed this before, I think on previous podcasts, unnecessary monster redesign. Yeah. You get away with it like with the Cybermen. The Cybermen have never returned in the same format other than in the... They've always been different. Other yeah. than in the uh, 21st century, there was some consistency in the RTD years of what the Cybermen were like. But... With the Silurians and the Sea Devils, it's pretty odd to have a monster of, you know, a biological kind of monster have its appearance change so dramatically in in form. It'd be like uh, humans looking very different. Like, you, you would, if you go like Rebel Flesh, Ganger humans, those are what humans look like this time. And, you know, it, 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 right. it, it stretches uh, credulity a little bit. Uh, if you try to redesign what a Silurian looks like, or the Sea Devils, I think was a little less of a stretch. Other than yeah, they just decided to dress up like samurai for some reason. And why not? You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Given uh, the chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, the most recent Sea Devil. You know, Legend of the Sea Devils. I was actually disappointed that they kind of did a string vest callback rather than a samurai callback um because hmm. um uh, spoiler alert legend of the sea devils is set in the south china sea so you know they could have dressed mm-hmm. like samurais and that would have worked pretty well but, right. but they didn't anyway um that's a discussion for another day but yeah i mean i think that you know the in show explanation of that um which i think has been carried on in kind of you know novelizations and particularly big finish is that the uh, the eo scenes as a group of of people are kind of genetic manipulating styly people and i guess they you know genetically manipulated themselves um mm-hmm. as well as you know came up with kind of crazy looking monsters <laughs> that weren't actually dinosaurs yeah you know and again point in case being their return in the moffat era which i guess was written by chibnall um where they mm-hmm. returned you know looking like human women with green face paint on yeah the design decision wasn't Chibnall. He just wrote the script, which was kind of a pastiche of right. Mac Hulk's uh, Silurians, effectively, and other 1970s Pertwee-era shows like uh, Inferno. But Chibnall was responsible for the return of uh, the Sea Devils and Legend of the Sea Devils, and just touching upon the design, the design seemed pretty good of the Sea Devils compared to what was done by Moffat with the Silurians in uh, uh, Hungry Earth. He was more, followed more closely on what a sea devil, what what we expected a sea devil to look like. Yeah, and I I mean, again, I mean, I think reading around um, Hungry Earth, etc., some of that was to do with, you know, actors not wanting to be in a mask hmm. uh, and, you know, wanting to act with their faces and, you know, etc., 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 which is... Again, fine, um, but but it is Doctor Who. Yeah, <laughs> and if you're agreeing to be a monster, pretty much you're going to have to either wear a mask or be in a rubber suit or something like yeah, that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. With you on that one. I think with the problem with the Sea Devils return and this and the Silurians return, the, effectively you already had the sequel with the Sea Devils itself. That was just another take on the Silurians 
they were just now the aquatic or the uh, watery form of the Silurians when the sea devils repaired. So in a way, the Warriors of the Deep is uh, the third story out for this ancient uh, ruler of the earth. The story itself, I think, is more focused on the Cold War and uh, nuclear Armageddon than focusing on the Silurians and the sea devils and they once ruled the earth you know that that's kind of the backstory but it's do you have that whole bit with the sink controller and Ingrid Pitt and effectively the Russians sabotaging the sea base and it it has depth I guess to make a bad pun but it's not really focused in on the monsters they're more baddies of the week I guess yeah, and it's they're throwing the, you know, mutually assured destruction kind of balance of terror mid-80s thing into perspective by, you know, creating an external threat, yeah. which, you know, in a sort of, I don't know, Watchmen-style way maybe makes people want to work together. I recently invested, as I'm sure our listener would love to know, in a, <laughs> in a, in a, a set of Warriors of the Deep Silurian action figures, which was a limited release from... Ah, uh, uh, BMM. Um, yeah, from B- well, not 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 BNM. This was actually directly, no. which is where I was able to get them. To be honest, because getting stuff from BNM is an absolute nightmare. Maybe you can do an entire podcast on that horrific experience. Um, but these were a direct release from character. Um, so you, you basically you got them directly from the character website, hmm. um, and they're very nice. But I think I think sorry, I'm going to go back to design now. I mean, I think the classic. Silurian costume and the way that they speak and the way that they kind of vibrate when they speak, they seem really alien. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, again, we've talked about this before, one of the things that Doctor Who does, to me, does so well is actual alien aliens. Um, so, you know, it's not someone with some, you know, Rice Krispies on their forehead. It's it's a, this, they, they go full alien. Um, and right. the problem, uh, again, when maybe we're not talking exactly about the direct sequel in terms of Warriors of the Deep, but the Hungry Earth sequel in New Who sort of humanized them in a way that makes it makes the dynamic of the story less effective to me. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that these lizard people are really alien um, and they don't understand us and they don't care and they want their planet back. And that's the story right. rather than they're sort of like humans, um, only they're painted green and we can kind of get <laughs> on with them. I like the idea. And I think this is in some ways what Johnny Byrne was trying to bring out, I think, in um, in in Warriors of the Deep. You know, this idea that the enemy is completely different from you. Right. And I think, you know, having lived through the 80s, this idea that, you know, Russians slash communists were completely antithetical to like everything that we were. Um, uh, and they were people that you could not negotiate with and you had to be ready to destroy them utterly. I think that was that's pretty well done. I mean, I like that. Mm-hmm. That opposition um, in, uh, you know, in Sea Devils and Doctor Who and the Silurians and also right. Warriors of the Deep as well, which I think I think works well. I mean, I think, you know, as everyone knows, the problem with, with Warriors of the Deep is not so much the story, but the execution. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's a hard one to carry off in the way that they carried it off in 1984, 83, 84 for Warriors of the Deep. And 
the thought is, what if you did the Merca, say, now in CGI or anything? And I think you still have the problems with it. And it's not just due to set lighting. Set the brightness on a sea base makes sense to me. It's it's it's. I think it's just the way it was done with the over over the top acting of Mark Strickson's uh, Turlo. Ingrid Pitt really isn't at her best. And it's sort of like not all the actors are agreeing on what this program really is or what this particular story, how, how to present this. Yeah, it's, I mean, story. It's, in that way, it's poorly directed. And, I, and again, yeah, I, mean, I think it's Pennant Roberts. Who, yeah, who's not doesn't have the greatest reputation. But again, you know, I'm not going to criticize him directly because, as again, as we know, Doctor Who was being produced at great speed at low budget. Mm-hmm. And I think it's difficult to sit down and make sure everyone understands what the story is supposed to be about because you literally don't mm-hmm. have time. Mm-hmm. One amazing thought that just popped into my head concerning Ingrid Pitt. You know what they should have done? Hmm. They should have had her be the character that she was in the Time Monster, and she's like an Atlantean <laughs> spy who's kind of. So there's basically there's Sea Devils and Silurians who are like getting together, and there's also Atlanteans who are getting together as well. And that would I, <laughs> that would have really worked for me. Or no, even better, the, the with the Master. The, the other, the kind of other evil missile owning block is not the Russians, it's the Atlanteans. Ah. And she's an Atlantean spy. And you could have uh, worked in Professor Zaroff in there. Exactly, exactly. That's, <laughs> oh, right, okay, big finish, come on. Every time, every time we do this podcast, we come up with amazing ideas. Make it so. <laughs> So I think anything more on the Eocene's return, or shall we go further back in time to the to the next monster return? Let's go back. Let's go back. Yeah, further back. And would you say the Santarns would be the next in time? I th- I think so. Yeah. And they had a double return after first appearing in the final series, final season of John Pertwee. The first of which would be the Santaran experiment. And yes. What do you make of that? You have another solo Santaran. Another solo Santaran. I think they work. Uh, I think they work better solo wise, mm-hmm. and I think um, mm-hmm. again they work better when you get their original the original writer back. I mean, I think one of the always the problem with any kind of you know adventure melodrama, which is what Doctor Who is, is like you know what is the story? Mm-hmm. And you know, Terence Dix pointed out, well, you know, there if you're on Earth. You know they're either they're either from space or they're a mad scientist or they've always been here kind of thing. I can't remember what what the exact formulation is. It's really hard to differentiate monsters from each other because mm-hmm. monsters always have the same plan. They're always monstrous um, and they're always evil. And I think we've we've mm-hmm. quite recently we discussed the Zygons, um, the, the terror of the Zygons. And the terror of the Zygons to me is is, is kind of interesting because. It is. They are monster of the week um, and they have the same plan that all monsters have. But they are so brilliantly realized and really so well written that they are incredibly distinctive. Similarly, I think with Mm -hmm. the Santarans is that they, they get Robert Holmes back. To well, they get to, well. He's script editing then. Exactly, and they, it's Baker and Martin. So he, with Holmes there, he, he can apply the gloss. Exactly, so the Holmesian gloss, and you get a very distinctive monster. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, who has. And again, I think when you have an individual model, and I guess, you know, now we're falling back into, well, uh, uh, were the, the Santarans in their first two iterations, were they villains or were they monsters? Right, um, right. I think they're monsters. And um, they have, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of sadism of Field Major Steyer is really well brought out. Um, yeah. And, you know, you have that kind of implied in the Time Warrior, but in again, it's on Tyrone experiment. It's a grim, it's a grim, grim, gritty, horrible, dirty, sadistic, nasty tale. Um, uh, and I think again, you know, I've got my rose tinted third eye um, uh, looking back at it. But I think I think it still is mm-hmm. um, an unpleasant story, uh, mm-hmm. which is typical Holmes. And also as a, a script editor, I, I, yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the of the mm-hmm. of the of Sontaran experiment. It's kind of ugly. I think the grittiness of the 70s is definitely a different coarseness or grit than the 1980s. It seems, that, uh, with Sayward going back to uh, Warriors of the Deep, the 1980s, especially under Sayward's uh, script editing, was trying to be very gritty. And I think with the, I, it just seems different what they were trying to do uh, in the 1970s with with grit and especially during the Hinchcliffe Holmes era it, it's more, it's more like a, a, a deep underground river rather than uh, a, a flood of the 1980s everything in the 1980s is kind of seems to be uh, with the grittiness on the surface very visceral with the Santaran experiment and even within uh, within the time warrior it's I think it's a little more subdued or in Applied. Now, granted, there's ex- very explicit torture and sadistic experimentation going in the Santaran experiment, but it, it it feels different for me, and I'm I'm not I'm having trouble pinning down why. I guess I'm mean, I'm not sure. Do you have any ideas or? No, I don't really. I mean, I think I think there is. It's a you know. It's I think it's a commonly commonly accepted truth that media popular media of the 1970s had a kind of an ugliness to it um and, mm. and i like your metaphor mm-hmm. of, of the kind of underground river what, what where that comes from i don't think i'm i'm you know i'm not qualified to, to to analyze um i think in some ways you know looking at the lives of the writers of course it's you know it's the writers and the script editors that we should be looking at you know i think some of it's got to do with the war Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming out of a, you know, a kind of pretty devastated country um, that had been through, you know, quite a lot. And, you know, you sort of come of age as a as a kind of script editor, writer for shows. Um, mm-hmm. That's something that, that, you know, that is a kind of an underlying current, you know, river of your <laughs> kind of creative, creative consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. The 80s, you know, 80s had this brightly colored kind of pastel colored excess like uh, you know, um, Miami Vice or something. Um, but, MTV. I mean, but, what's that? <laughs> MTV. Oh, MTV. Exactly. Yeah, because everything's on video. Everything's kind of bright and sharp, and surface feeling. Um, and I think again, you know, one, one might want to talk about shooting on film versus shooting on videotape. Then, of course, the entire experiment famously was 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 all was all, was all on videotape. But yeah, it's 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 hard to pull out. I, I'm sure there is. Um, uh, I'm sure there's there's you know endless academic treaties that we could cite that kind of explain all this. Mm-hmm. But there is a difference. I mean, I think something like you know, saw Eric saw it. It just feels kind of gestural. It feels very surface, and 
with the Hinchcliffe slash Holmes, it feels very kind of deep and meant. I guess I, then I'm also thinking about the second half of the of 70s Who, which is, you know, Graham Williams era, yeah. etc., which again, it has a brightly coloured kind of pastel feel to it, but it does feel 70s. I mean, I think, you know, it has that kind of flip side bad design, brightly coloured flock wallpaper um, feeling to it, um, which again is different from the 80s. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. It seems more relaxed and um, having fun, while I think the 1980s is more violent for violence. You can just look at, like, City of Death, the Tom Baker line, uh, what a great butler, he's so violent, or something like that. It's more more tongue-in-cheek, it's more of a sense of humor, and the violence... I think it's more unapologetic violence in the 70s. In the 1980s, it's not baked in. It's more the frosting or the garnish. It's on top. It's it's more. It feels more gratuitous, I guess, rather than woven into the fabric of the story. Yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, again, I mean, I, again, I'm not quite sure I'm going with this thought. I mean, the whole point of Doctor Who is a science fiction melodrama. I mean, mm-hmm. everything is gratuitous. Hmm. You know, it's a gratuitous show. It is delivering shocks slash thrills, and that's what it's for, basically. Uh, and I think again, I think where perhaps the eighties and Sawood falls down is they is they is they stop remembering that that's what they are. This program is not something that's about delivering kind of deep meanings. Um, uh, you know, about the meaning of violence or something. It's delivering shocks and thrills. And the violence is should be both shocking and also thrilling, um, mm. making it realistic and making a point about people really get hurt when alien monsters take over the world. Well, that doesn't make any sense because alien monsters never take over the world because alien monsters don't exist. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to make a point about graphic violence, Doctor Who is not the medium to make that point. Right. It's sort of like with... Uh... Attack of the Cybermen. That's the one I was thinking about, yeah. With crushing Lytton's hands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's it's not, um, you just wouldn't see that in, say, Tomb of the Cybermen for good or ill. It's just a, it's a different approach to the storytelling. Yeah, it's just not necessary. You don't have to be graphic to deliver the, the shock slash thrills that you are, you, you're supposed to be delivering. Uh, you don't have to show that, you know, it really hurts when someone gets their hands crushed. We kind of already know that. We can um, we can imagine that. We can imagine that. So touching back into the early 70s with Mac Hulk, would you consider the Ogrons and Frontier in Space to be a returning monster? Absolutely. Ogrons are brilliant. I am a very strong uh, believer that Ogrons should come back. There's not enough Ogrons. Hmm. We need we need mm-hmm. Ogrons back again. I th- I, I'm a big fan of Ogrons. Definitely returning a monster then. They're definitely returning monster. Um they the, the brilliant thing about ogrons is that they <laughs> provide a level of grim humor to right you know they're incredibly stupid and because i think because of the speed that doctor who is made at mm-hmm. their direction in terms of line delivery is be stupid which allows for a lot of kind of variant line delivery which is just kind of amusing um and um yeah i like them very much um i think the visit to the ogron Ogras, home planet yeah. ogris um, <laughs> um it's just great and um yeah no i mean I, yeah they, they are a returning monster and they should return more yeah, I'm I'm skeptical that you could carry them off in the 21st century. I'm not sure how you would design them or make them effective other than cuz they're they're effectively type 
Planet of the Ape type Doctor Who monsters. Yeah, they're Planet of the Apes, exactly. Yeah, and they're dim-witted, they're slow, and they're always the tool of another, an, an, a, a, a villain, effectively. Either you have the Daleks in Day of the Daleks or you have the Master in Frontier in Space. Yeah. I could see it with a Sasha Dewan Master orchestrating something with the Ogrons. That seems like uh, uh, something that he would do. And then maybe... Maybe it would have been in better than Ascension of the Cybermen. You have the Ascension of the Ogrons, Ogron Time Lords. Oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah, I mean, again, if you, if you look at the most recent kind of Ogrons that we've seen, really, uh, uh, you know, and we, we know that Peter Jackson is a big Doctor Who fan. Um, they're essentially the orcs in Lord of the mm. Rings. Um, mm. I mean, that's mm. what... That's what the kind of modern Ogrons would have to look like. And again, I think mm. on, a, on, a, on a BBC... Even a you know a, a RTD reboot budget, I think that would be quite difficult to pull off without seeming weird. So I think the success of the Ogrons and Frontier in Space, their return is they looked pretty much the same as Day of the Daleks, and they behaved the same. There wasn't much space between the Ogrons and the two serials, and then you expand upon the Ogron mythos, as you said, by returning to the Ogron homeworld and having the giant uh, testacular uh, god monster that they worship. <laughs> I mean, it's typ- typical of Ogrons that even their, even their kind of god is not very good. Um, no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, yeah. A, a, a very successful return, and I think it's a shame they've not returned. I, th- I mean, you know, Daleks, or, you know, uh, and again, I mean, I think even in Frontier in Space, yeah, the reason why the master is using the ogrons is because of the Daleks. Right. And I think Daleks need hench people because, as we know, they have trouble climbing stairs. And, uh, you know, if I think, you know, from robo men to ogrons to pig slaves, you know, mm-hmm. Daleks need people with limbs to kind of help them along. Mm-hmm. And the ogrons are perfect because they're just, you know, they're, they're just kind of bodies, basically. You know, you can kill them and it's fine because they're just ogrons. You know, it's it's a... Yeah, I think for my my money, I think it would have been better to have the Ogrons there in Daleks in Manhattan than Pig Slaves. And I think the whole idea was for the Pig Slaves, it was the mutation and uh, kind of spinning off that the the human Dalek was a mutation too. But I think Ogrons probably would have been better, funnier at least, in Daleks in mm. Manhattan than the Pig Slave. But you'd, you'd leave the whole... Uh, Tallulah love the plot with her pig boyfriend so I guess yeah and I think you know without actually going there I mean I think you know and I've I've not read this around Doctor Who but I've certainly read this around Peter Jackson and and Lord of the Rings there's a an unpleasant racial implication with orcs in Lord of the Rings and I think that would be similar with Ogrons and I think especially if you put them into 19 you know late 19 uh, early 1930s New York there would be something there that would be difficult to pass out um, Mm. in a you know Mm. 45 minute TV show Mm, good point the great thing about Ogrons and um, and this I think this is something that I, I always find interesting and why Daleks are fun to me is that both Ogrons and Robomen are incredibly dumb and are not particularly useful right. as, as servants. And I just think it's hilarious. I find it personally hilarious that Daleks, you know, being this kind of master race, and uh, 
this is what I think about Daleks in general. They're kind of a, a really ineffective master race. If only they, they kind of thought it through better, they would be a lot more effective. But, you know, they are incapable of picking servants who are not endlessly fouling up. Um, they don't want any challenge. They don't want any exactly. threat to their authority. Exactly, which is what makes them amusing because the fact that they don't want any, any threat to their authority makes their plans, you know, usually become ineffective. You know, it's what they say of governments. An intelligent leader is going to surround him or herself by intelligent people. A, a dumb leader is going to surround himself by people even dumber because they don't want to have the risk of anyone exactly. upstaging them. And that's the Daleks writ large. That's, there. that's the Daleks, 100%, um, which... which adds a depth of kind of characterization to, to Daleks, which I think a lot of, well, I guess I'm being mean about a lot of people. I feel a, a lot of people miss in, you know, in just kind of seeing Daleks as, you know, the, the kind of standard, the kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of gold standard of Doctor Who monsters. And they, you know, they're just, they're a, they're a monster of the week. Daleks have a lot of, have a lot of very interesting characterization, mm-hmm. which, which I, I always enjoy with them. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the fact that they feel themselves, feel it necessary to rely on very, very stupid assistants makes them even more funny and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Mac Holt didn't invent the Ogrons. Right. But the next returning monster, as far as I can think of, it would be the Autons in kind of uh, the same script over again with Terror of the Autons that uh, Bob Holmes had in Spearhead from Space. Yeah, and I think here what we're really looking at is Autons are monsters of the week. And the, the point of Terror of the Autons is A... Okay, we opened the first season of John Pert with the Ortons. It went down really well. Um, we're going to open the second season of John Pert with the Ortons. That's also going to go down really well because people already know what they're up to. What we're really doing here is we're, is we're introducing the master and what the master right. what the master yeah. gets up to. So we don't need. We want the master to have a plan, and we want that plan to involve aliens. But we, you know, we don't want to waste time explaining what the aliens are up to. Mm-hmm. Let's just have the same aliens that worked the last time. Mm-hmm. We already know what they're up to, and the master is involved, and it works very well. As, as I think, as mm-hmm. I think, as people generally accept, Terror of the Ordens is excellent. And at this point, there really isn't a monster of the week that could work well other than the Cybermen. And we had that same plot. If you were to put the Cybermen in the Auton role in Terror of the Autons, you effectively have the invasion, right? Exactly, and the master being Tobias, Tobias Bond. Form, so. Yeah. It makes sense that Bob Holmes would bring back the monster I created the previous season and uh, redo it. And the Autons are very effective on the budget-wise because they're a simple plastic mask, a little plastic hand, and then you can just dress them in uh, street clothes. They're not they're not a stretch when it comes to rubber monster costumes. No, exactly. And, you know, they are the first of the... Uh, maybe there's another one before that, but, you know, but they are the first of the kind of Moffat style, um, you know, a frightening thing that is every day. Like it's a crack. It's mm-hmm. um, stuff that's in your eye. It's a statue, etc. Yeah. You know, obviously that's where Moffat got all that from is from is from mm-hmm. is from the Ortons. Yeah. yeah. And RTD uses that, too, to launch uh, with Rose and Eccleston. It's a very effective uh, yeah. way of launching any new uh, dynamic of who, whether it be Pertwee in the color era, Earthbound, or RTD launching with Rose and uh, a brand new Doctor for a whole new uh, millennia. Exactly, exactly. 
Autons kind of fell out of favor, I guess, after the Terror of the Autons. I think Barry Letts and Dix thought that they had expended what they could do out of the Autons having back-to-back seasons, and they never reappeared until the modern modern show. Uh, I think there was some talk of them returning for Colin Baker's Doctor. Yeah, with Holmes, yeah. That season was canceled. Instead, we had season... 23 trial of the time lord so the tertiary return of the uh, autons never happened in the 20th century yeah and i think about i mean i think autons are great i mean they they encompass kind of three strands of kind of doctor who-ness one of which is an amorphous intelligence which mm-hmm. is very useful because it's amorphous and you know its plans are to take over things to the you know the horror of the everyday object be it your statue or a crack or some plastic um, and three, the ability to shape shift into something that looks exactly like something else. Yeah. And, you know, if, uh, certainly with new who, 21st century who, are you monsters that can look like other, that can look like people? Um, you know, that's a, such a kind of common plot device. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean, Orton's really, you know, they, to me, they, they really kind of show the way on how to make these stories work. Yeah. And it's consistency, effectively. If you have a returning monster, you really want to be consistent to what went on before and then just expand it a little bit. Yeah. And I'm not sure with uh, Terror of the Autons, Autons are expanded at all. Where the expansion happens, like you mentioned previously, is the introduction of the master. Right. So you can have the monster of the week, Autons, and do something different because they're in the background. Right. Right. They're a prop. And I think emphasizes the distinction that we often make, like we had said earlier, between villain and monster. The villain uses the monsters to carry out his or her plan. Yeah. And the monsters themselves are more of a tool of the villain. Yeah. I think the other useful thing about Autons is that they're both monster and they're villain. Um, in the, you know, the great intelligence with the Yeti, there's the great intelligence mm-hmm. is the villain the Yeti is the monster. Similarly with Autons, you know, the Auton, the nesting consciousness is the villain mm. and the Autons mm-hmm. is the monster. And the the, yeah. the kind of clever, interesting, but ultimately slightly weird plot resolution tension within Terror of the Autons is we've got two villains um, and mm-hmm. the two villains, you know, are working together. And uh, the, in the end, one villain... They're not. <laughs> yeah, one villain has to prevail over the other. Right. And I think that's a pretty common kind of structure within within kind of classic who and i think the autons really are the sort of you know to me are the the are the ideal expression of that of the the villain and the monster do you think that distinction gets more explicit with the introduction of the master that previous to the introduction of the master every baddie was a monster but once we have the master in place you have villains and monsters. You, you look at back something like Enemy of the World, you, we're not saying that Salamander is a, is a monster at all. No. He's a villain. Right. But if you go even back to the next returning monster with the Ice Warriors, the Ice Warriors, uh, their initial debut, they had names. It's sort of like with the Cybermen. They had names. They're more distinct individuals. We had see the same thing with the Santarans. So it's it's harder to call, perhaps it's harder to call something a monster when that character or that uh, foe is given a name. Right. 
Right, right. And we see that again, like in in the 1970s return of the Ice Warriors in Curse and Monster of Peladons. Uh, the Ice Warriors have names. And so it's it, it's something like the Draconians. We don't think of Draconians as monsters because they're all names. They have a culture. They're not just a, the big scary thing in this in the story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, villains. Yeah, villains. It's. I mean, it's. it's you know, it's. It's James Bond. You know, villains have henchmen, mm. and mm-hmm. as the show kind of develops itself and starts realizing that it can't keep on repeating the same story over and over again, the kind of villains start to emerge, and those villains they they have hench people mm-hmm. who kind of do their bidding. I think the best example, and as usual, we've talked about this before, is Davros and the Daleks. Is yeah. that as soon as we come up with Davros, who is the villain? Daleks are relegated pretty quif- pretty swiftly, not in Genesis, which I think is a is a very different and a, a kind of truly groundbreaking story, but in all subsequent Dalek stories, Daleks are the henchmen, mm-hmm. um, and Davros is the villain. And again, everyone knows my views on this. I think that's a shame because um, I think Daleks have a lot more characterization to them. They don't have names, um, as you've taught, but they have way more characterization as a race than the usual monster of the week. Yeah, yeah. And they've tried to give Daleks names. We have, like, the Dalek Emperor. We have uh, Alpha, Beta, and Omega in the evil of Daleks. And so it's been an experimentation with naming Daleks and giving them distinctive uh, personalities or distinct motivations. But it maybe doesn't work with... uh, Daleks, because their uh, design is so effective, they are not in any way relatable to humans. They are machine tank creatures that uh, the individuality is is lost. You can't have, like with an ice warrior, a, a v- variation of, of a look about them because that's not what the Daleks are about. They're all about uniformity. Right, 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 right. So. Yeah. So what yeah. what do you make of the Ice Warriors return Seeds of Death? Yeah, well, I mean they were successful first time round, you know, bringing back the conquering of the earth. I mean I think it's again interesting, you know, that we introduce an ice lord. Mm-hmm. Um so they have a leader. It's not the exact kind of villain henchman dynamic that we've been talking about, but you know, it's getting right. there. To me it's really a story that's about the TARDIS team. And I watch it really less for the kind of thrills of Ice Warriors and more for the thrills of watching Troughton and his companions kind of go through their go through their roles. Mm-hmm. I think really Ice Warriors are, in that return, they are Monster of the Week. They don't really have anything distinctive that they're up to. I think when they come back again in the in the in the two Peladon stories in the seventies, mm-hmm. that's when we get kind of characterization, and I think a lot of that really has to do with um, people maybe watching Star Trek and thinking about Klingons, and which mm. is obviously you know draconians are like that right, as well. I think right. We need we need these races to have a culture. It's again, it's a great shame that the draconians have never come back, but I mean I can you know I think we we sort of had them with the return of the Silurians, mm. but. I don't find the Ice Warriors particularly distinctive. Mm-hmm. I think we enjoy that they're returning because we had a great time when they first appeared, but they're not doing anything that's unusual. You could certainly slot in Cybermen, and I think you could probably slot in, if they had existed then, the Santarans. Yep, or Daleks or anyone. Quarks. 
quarks. Yep. Uh, <laughs> crotons. It could have been the Crot- 10-part croton story where you see the <laughs> croton, in, introduce the crotons in the previous story, and then the crotons try to take over the Earth. It's uh, really, really slowly take over the Earth. Because yeah. it follows the Dalek blueprint right there, the Dalek master plan of uh, first introducing the Daleks, and then the next thing you know, they're trying to take over yeah. the Earth. Yeah. That's, that's how it works. And I, I actually, if you think about it, you know, the way that the crotons are kind of constructed, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of crystalline creatures. Mm-hmm. You can imagine them being far more suited to kind of matter transportation devices than yeah. than the ice warriors are. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you know, kind of transported as kind of crystal lattices or something that then kind of reassemble themselves. Mm-hmm. That would have worked really well um, if they found a way to make the crotons less less lumbering. The foam would somehow crystallize. Yeah, into a croton. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go, big opportunity. <laughs> Come on, crotons, bring them back. <laughs> so probably the quickest uh, monster return was the Yeti, where we just rest them for a cereal, and then Hazeman and Lincoln bring them back with the Web of Fear. And for my money i think that's probably one of the most yeah. successful monster returns and it breaks all the rules where you redesign the yeah, monster yeah yeah it's and, and uh, we, we've only recently talked about web of fear so again we, we yes we, we, do, we, yes. we don't want to don't want to re- re- rehash too quickly but again it, you know it's that dalek characterization um where you know as, as, as i've said it's just hilarious but also kind of character building that the great intelligence is arrogant slash stupid enough to believe that yetis are the best henchmen to have <laughs> to take over the London Underground. Uh, it's just, you mm-hmm. know, it's just, uh, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Great intelligence. Anybody could have told you that if you'd done any kind of small amount of research um, before you launch your invasion plan. You, Ooh, you, well, with with that level of research, it must be Ford Prefect who is the great intelligence. Exactly. That's this kind of a exactly. slipshod research that <laughs> one would expect from Ford. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, which again is a nice piece of characterization to me, and makes the the great intelligence more more relatable uh, mm-hmm. rather than an amorphous space villain has any right to be. To be honest, right? Yeah. <laughs> So I guess we're left with the top two baddies of Doctor Who uh, from Monster, at least on the Monster spectrum, uh, the Cybermen, which return in the moon base, totally redesigned, and the Daleks, which we'll kind of uh, wrap up with. But the Cybermen come back, and they're not the now-named Mondasian Cybermen. They're the uh, more akin to the design that they would have throughout the 1970s and 80s, I guess 60s, 70s, and 80s after um, the 10th planet, uh, more robotic-looking rather than surgery victims. Yeah, in the moon base, they are slightly monster of the week. I think one of the fun things that they establish in moon base is, and I don't know whether this is deliberate or not, um, is the the kind of just sheer complexity and weirdness of cyber planning, <laughs> um, which becomes you know an interesting piece of characterization. You know, we we sort of laugh at it, like you know, Cybermen always come up with the most ridiculous plans, but they always do, and that's actually one of the things that they do do, which I think is kind of fun and interesting about them, um, and makes them alien. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we can look at the cyber plans and go like, well, you know, you could have cut out three or four steps there and actually 
probably would have come up with with the same result. Right. That means that we're giving them a character and we're making them alien. You know, they don't really think like us, even though some of us from the Brotherhood of Logicians believe that they do think like us. Well, of course they don't. <laughs> do you think it's fair to characterize the Cybermen in the Moon Base as a returning monster? They're totally redesigned. They have different voices. They come from somewhere else. Yeah, right? it, it's almost like they're a new monster in a way, other than they're just reusing the name. Because if I was a kid watching this, uh, the the Cybermen were there in, what, 66? Right. I think in 10th Planet in 66, and this is a year later in 67 with the, with the moon base. They're a different monster. I almost feel like this Talosian Cybermen are distinct from the Mondasian Cybermen in almost every regard. I would almost see the Tomb of the Cybermen as the uh, sequel to the Moon Base rather than the Moon Base be the sequel to the Tenth Planet. Just in terms of uh, aesthetic, the Cybermen have names in the Tenth Planet. They don't have names. They have a controller or a leader or planner it's a the the whole dynamic of cybermen changes between the 10th planet and the moon base i think one of the genius things about cybermen and again this i'm sure this isn't deliberate but i think it's 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 certainly effective um is that they really establish an alien monster creature that has some kind of history and i think i think that's one of the things that who's done really really well i think it's what i think it's uh, you know, a thousand people can correct me. I think it was one of the very first science fiction shows to do that is to create monsters that don't simply turn up, go and fire their laser guns and then right. get defeated. They actually have a backstory to mm-hmm. them. Uh, one of the neat things about Cybermen, and again, I'm not sure this is entirely deliberate, that backstory is obscure, but it's there. You know, okay, right. why are they different? What's going on? The next story they have, they have a tomb. You start to make up your own stories to explain why they're happening. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things I think that makes Who effective and you know starts to create a fandom because we're curious to find out exactly how the Cybermen have changed between their first, you know, in in their first three stories, why are they so radically different from each other? Mm-hmm. And they must have some kind of history that we're not being told about. And that's when you start to become a fan because you start to think about, well, okay, what is that history? You start right. to build your right. own stories, yeah. which I think is what has, what has made them effective um, uh, because they have a, you know, they have a narrative to them that we're, that we, that is implied, but we have to make that, make up that narrative ourselves. Mm-hmm. They do try to follow the same pattern every time. It seems to be invasion of Earth. You had the Tenth Planet invasion of Earth. Moon Base is another invasion of Earth. Tomb of the Cybermen uh, is a trap. And then the next one, Wheel in Space, is again trying to invade Earth. And uh, the invasion is a literally invasion of Earth. So it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a single purpose in what their motivations are it's to get more human resources effectively to name check a big finish story yeah but they're consistent in that way i guess yeah no absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and that's what builds character and that's what makes a returning monster their race has a character that that can be explored do you think that by becoming a monster of the week though that dilutes or weakens the monster's brand 
I think it depends on what kind of characteristics you can extract to kind of tell new stories about them. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I entirely agree with what he did, but, you know, I think Moffat was smart to sort of reinvent Sontarans as Strax <laughs> because, you know, it extracts the humour from Sontarans and gives them, you know, there's another dimension to their kind of racial character, mm-hmm. you know, monster race character. Um, I, you know, it, it's there, it's there in RTD. Um, in um, the Sontar and Stratagem, etc. But, uh, you know, Moffat kind of, okay, okay, we're going to run with this. Um, right. This is what they're like. Uh, so I think it really depends on what, you know, what, what characteristics you can extract from their character. That's not mm-hmm. some kind of weird tautology that I've just thought of. Right. So I guess the monster that made Doctor Who, the Daleks, which is our, I guess, our original returning monster, returns with Dalek Invasion of Earth. Uh, another riff on a World War II type plot where the fascists, the Nazis have conquered Britain and now it's a repelling or a resistance story. Yeah, just going back to the Cybermen for, for a second. I mean, I think yeah, sure. uh, Cybermen versus the Daleks. I mean, I think there are two two sort of Nazi stories, one of which is the Nazis have taken over and we have to resist them, um, which mm-hmm. is Daleks. Um, and then the other is Nazis have landed and they're trying to take over, which is Cybermen. So, you know, you get, get that movie, what is it, um, Went the Day Well, which is, you know, a small group of Nazi paratroopers, you know, arrive in an English village and we have to defeat them. Um, right. And they have names and, you know, all like, I don't know, um, the eagle has landed. You know, they're all, they're, they're characterized. They're, they're individuals, but we have to fight mm-hmm. against them. And then you have the other one, which is, you know, it happened here or, you know, I don't know, Man in the High Castle when the Nazis have totally taken over and we're the resistance. And I think that's the difference between the kind of Cybermen stories and the Dalek stories in the kind of first off Mm -hmm. to me. And they hit the nail on the head there with Silver Nemesis doing that whole conflation of Nazis with Cybermen and uh, the Alliance. Which which really works badly. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, we've talked about how they could have uh, done a little bit better expanding that Norse mythology with the Cybermen being the giants and the Nazis being the Aryan super race and how the giants and the whatever. They could have went further in that direction than they did. Yeah, you could absolutely see what they're doing, which then makes it kind of a failure because you can absolutely see what they're doing. And right. they don't go far enough. And they, and it's also too obvious as well, which is why you know, right. Silver Nemesis doesn't really work that well. Yeah, interesting premise. Could have been effective. They weren't able to weave all those yarns together into a nice, uh, pleasing <laughs> tapestry, I guess. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. 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 So the Daleks, your your favorite monster returns. Do you have a preference between the debut and the return? Um, I, I, Dalek Invasion of Earth, I think, is, a, is fully formed Daleks. And I think they're also... Coming off the back of Dalek Mania, and uh, yeah, I, I much prefer uh, Invasion of Earth mm-hmm. than to um, um, than to the Mutants or whatever it's called, you know, Doctor Who and the Daleks. Because uh, they just work so well, and they're you know they have a plan, and we have to resist them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's 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 very enjoyable tale. Yeah, they came back in the same year. Effectively, uh, it was first part of sixty four, end of sixty three. With the the Daleks, and then at the very end, uh, Flashpoint was uh, episode six of um, the Dalek Invasion Earth was the day after Christmas, nineteen sixty four. So right, nineteen sixty four, right. year of the Dalek, it, completely. Do you think that appeal is instead of introducing the Thals, which we had in uh, with Scarrow and the Daleks, 
we have relatable humans and we have archetypes that we've seen in 1964 Britain. These are people in living memory. These are people that kids would know. They would be their uncle. They would be their right, right, right. aunt. They're, they're, they're very familiar family members who fought in the Second World War. And they're not these alien kind of uh, Aryans that are uh, Terry Nation is uh, flipping, the, flipping the script on for, uh, you know, the... For, for 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 effect, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good tale. It's a good tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as you said, it's very relatable. And again, you know, even the nineteen seventies as a kid, I was playing games of resisting Nazis. And if you see all of Doctor Who as some variety of a child of a children's game, um, you know, hiding from the villain and fighting back is a pretty standard game. Yeah, you know, it's very relatable. I mean, it's what we do. And it's what Doctor Who is about. Yeah. You know, it, it's a very much uh, a story format that is reused, uh, recycled, reused quite a bit in Doctor Who is, you know, hiding from the monsters, fighting from the monsters, Boxing trying to back. defeat the monsters. It, yep. It's a televised children's play. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what Dalek invasion is. And, uh, you know, the Daleks, as I said, the Daleks have a characterization. And I think... Um, when they came back in New Who, I was pleased that, you know, and I think, you know, RTD was smart and he, is, he agrees with me. You know, he did not bring back Davros immediately. You know, he right. lent into Dalek characterization before bringing back the Davros figure. Yeah. You know, and again, as, as everyone knows, I'm sort of against Davros coming back at all, ever. Um, but if he is a returning villain, let's use him sparingly right. um, rather than kind of use him all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's easier to do uh, returning villains or returning monsters well? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, probably returning villains, though I prefer returning monsters, so I don't know. I don't know, don't know the answer to that one. Okay. I'm kind of of the Philip Hinchcliffe school where I really don't like returning monsters. I like the new, I don't like doing the sequel. And so beyond season 12, which was a Barry Letts and uh, Terrence Dix kind of commissioning the stories, there's not returning monsters in the Hinchcliffe Holmes era. And that expands the Doctor Who universe with Sutek and Deadly Assassin and, you know, the robots of death. And you have that kind of expansion of the universe. When you have returning monsters, it seems to me that you become overly continuity heavy you you run those risks of not being able to tell a story because you start ladening yourself up with continuity issues yeah yeah that makes sense i'm I'm not sure what how you would view returning monsters is it a seasoning or is it a course is it a staple of the show i think it's a monster show you want to see the monsters come back you know i think there's a lot to be said for okay, we need a monster to be doing something. Why not have, you know, use some of the monsters that we've got already? Mm-hmm. A great example of that is is Macra in New Who, um, where, okay, mm-hmm. we want something. Um, okay, we've already got Macra. Um, let's just bring them back. Right. For a new audience, they won't know. For an old audience, they'd be like, yay, here come the Macra. So... You know, um, you ha- you have to you have to think about what the story is. You know, what what monster suits that story. Um, to me, one of the biggest failures, and some I think part of the failure is in actually design for me rather than character, is the, the Zygons returning in the Moffat era hmm. because I don't think they bring anything extra. Because I think the Zygons work best as the one-off monster. 
Um, and I think they are the archetype of monster of the week. Uh, and to, to have them as a returning monster really just kind of points out their weakness, which is they don't really have anything to do. Yeah. So, yeah. I would agree that you'd want, you need monsters, some monsters remain defeated. And by bringing them back with the same kind of plan, it's less satisfying. There's less crunch the second time around. Right, 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 right. There has to be something new. There has to be a reason for doing it rather than just retelling the same story. Exactly. If you're doing a returning monster and you're not adding anything new, you're better off doing something with Terror of the Autons where the newness is the master rather than uh, something like the moon base where the newness is the costumes. Right. So uh, right. just throwing that out there, I guess. Um, my computer is just about to run out of battery. All right, so we should wrap um, up. It's just told me it's got low battery. So, yeah, sorry about that. No, that's all right. And we're about done, too. Cool. Um, right. There you go. That's, that's it's some of The machines are telling me to end the podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 203 of the Metabetus 2 podcast. I have been plotting my return with Ben. And I have been conversing with a returning villain. (laughs) Um, Who is David? (laughs) Nothing in the world will stop me now. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that is frightening. (laughs) All right. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody. 